Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is the amazing writer and director Nicholas Meyer. While Meyer is probably best known as the writer and director of the beloved sci-fi sequels Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, and also as the director of the sci-fi adventure Time After Time and the devastating nuclear disaster TV movie The Day After, our conversation revolves around his Sherlock Holmes stories. In 1974, Meyer published the best-selling novel The 7% Solution, presented as a rediscovered manuscript in which Arthur Conan Doyle's famous detective meets Sigmund Freud in Vienna, who cures him of his cocaine addiction. Meyer received an Academy Award nomination for adapting his book into a screenplay for the movie version directed by Herbert Ross, which was released in 1976 and starred Nicole Williamson, Robert Duvall, Alan Arkin, Vanessa Redgrave and Sir Lawrence Olivier. Maya wrote four more Holmes novels in the following years, starting with The West End Horror, in which Holmes and Watson solve a case in London's theatre district and meet famous artists like George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker. In the third Holmes novel, The Canary Trainer, Holmes works undercover as a violin player at the Paris Opera and crosses paths with Gaston Leroux's famous Phantom of the Opera. More recently, Maya wrote The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, in which Holmes is on the trail of the infamous Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a vicious forgery which is supposed to document a Jewish plan for world domination. The fifth Holmes novel, The Return of the Pharaoh, is set in Egypt and has an older Holmes working with archaeologist Howard Carter on solving a mystery revolving around a previously undiscovered pharaoh's tomb. In our conversation, Nicholas Meyer discusses how he developed the ideas of his Holmes novels and how he found the connection between Arthur Conan Doyle and Sigmund Freud. He talks about the process of adapting the book for the film version of The 7% Solution and about his discussions with director Herbert Ross revolving around several changes. We also discuss the other Holmes novels and take a brief detour into Meyer's Star Trek movies. Meyer also explains why the job of a psychoanalyst is similar to that of a movie editor. And he shares a story that revolves around his take on the concept of originality. If you enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Meyer, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out our other interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is the brilliant Holmes to my ordinary Watson, Nicholas Meyer. Before we start talking about the, um, the characters and the details of all the stories, there's one thing that I'd like to start with, uh, which is the literary device that you use um, for um, creating the stories or for presenting the stories, um, which is the lost manuscript device. So you, you pretend that it's a manuscript that was somehow unearthed and is now being published many years after the fact. And then in the introduction, you go to great lengths to explain to us how you find the manuscript or how it got into your hands and why you think it's um, not a forgery, even though it is, of course, <laughs> um, and how you edited it. And I was just wondering how that framing device came to be and how you developed that. Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think I developed it for several reasons. Um, which can be traced probably to two things. One, I was reluctant to take credit for being the author of something that was actually originally authored by somebody else, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. And I imitated Doyle. 
who also claimed he wasn't the author. He said, this is a reprint from the reminiscences of. And I liked that device because it allowed me to um, not pretend to a, a creative originality that I am not possessing. It's a way of saying uh, this is a forgery in a way. Um, the other thing is that I wanted to play the game. I wanted to respect, uh, I, I had read by this, when I wrote the 7% solution, the first one, I had discovered this huge library of Sherlockiana, all the, the writings about the writings that I hadn't even known existed. I was spending all the money I had, which was not a lot on these secondhand volumes and things that you found in bookstores about Sherlock Holmes and women, Sherlock Holmes and music, Sherlock Holmes. And then finally, this big double-barreled book, the annotated, complete annotated Sherlock Holmes by W.S. Baring Gould was published. And there was the chronology. And then <clears throat> I also found a biography of Watson, a biography of Holmes. And it became important to me to fit my stories into the gaps in the chronology. Even though, you know, Holmes enthusiasts who are all nuts, by the way, you know, you're looking at exhibit A, um, <laughs> have disputed some of the chronology, but I, you know, so you can argue whether this case took place in March or whatever, <clears throat> but I sort of accepted the Baron Gould chronology out of laziness, if nothing else, but it just, and wanting to sort of fit in. Um, I also, I think was prompted, and this is not exactly your question, but maybe it belongs. When I wrote the 7% solution, it was slightly a protest against other Sherlock Holmes imitations that I had read or more precisely watched because I hated all the Sherlock Holmes movies, which seemed to me sort of a campy, uh, they weren't, you know, the way my 11 year old self made sense of these stories. And, and that Watson was always portrayed as such a jerk I could never understand. I thought, well, why does a genius hang out with with a, a jerk? You know, Holmes is quite vain as I read him. He wants not the admiration of a of a jerk. He wants the admiration of like a regular person, the reader, us, whatever. So I was intent on a revisionist look at Watson. Um, and all of which by letting me be the editor as opposed to the writer, I could comment, I could restore, I could editorialize, if you like, with these footnotes. Mm -hmm. So th those were my sort of my two reasons for adopting the edited by persona. 
it's um, and I think um, it's part of the fun actually to to read the books and then you sort of get in in the mood it's almost like a wink to the audience because I mean you're the author of the book and I know that it's um, uh, that it's a new story um, and yet we spend I don't know like 10 or 20 pages where we sort of dive into uh, where this manuscript was found and um, you know all sorts of uh, uh, ad adventures on how it got into your hands and and um, this kind of thing. I'm running out of explanations. <laughs> um, now, what I find interesting here is um, when you say that you wanted to do a revisionist take on uh, the Watson interpretations. I mean, it, it, in a way, the Sherlock Holmes books that you wrote, they're sort of an homage, of course, to Arthur Conan Doyle. They're written in, in the style of Arthur Conan Doyle. They sort of pretend they are lost Sherlock Holmes books. And yet at the same time, this is especially true for the 7% solution, it's unlike any other Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes story. I mean, it's a story where Sherlock Holmes is incapacitated for the first part of the uh, for the uh, of the book, where Watson is sort of the um, the active part in it. Um, it. And you even go so far in the introduction as to strike official Conan Doyle stories off the record where you say they are a forgery. <laughs> Yours is not a forgery, but the Arthur Conan Doyle stories about Moriarty um, are actually... <laughs> um, I should point out in my very considerable reading on all this stuff that I am not the only person who has suggested that some of these Doyle Watson stories are in fact spurious, fake. Mm -hmm. um, this is the game that these scholars endlessly play. Um, they play them for various reasons. Those who would like to, for example, uh, deny or question that Holmes was a drug addict. Mm -hmm. that the cocaine addict, uh, will suggest that uh, Holmes was teasing a gullible Watson by referring to the cocaine on the mantelpiece and, and so on. And they also like to suggest, and it has been suggested, that Moriarty doesn't exist, <clears throat> that no one ever sees Moriarty except mm -hmm. Holmes. And so you say, well, you know, you, you see a man shaking his fist at a departing train, but how many guys have missed their train and gotten angry at the departing train? How do we know it's Moriarty? I always hated Moriarty as a device. I know that Doyle dreamt him up solely in order uh, to attempt killing off Holmes. I say attempt. Because on some psychological level, I think he didn't entirely mean to do away with him for the simple reason that if he had, he would have produced a body. But he doesn't. I think somewhere, Doyle, for all his protestations, about how he doesn't like Sherlock Holmes and how sort of curiously obtuse he is about Holmes's appeal. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> as opposed to his science fiction, his historical novels uh, in which he lavished such uh, care. And some of them, by the way, are, are absolutely fantastic. The White Company is fantastic and, and, and The Lost World is fantastic. But these stories, which he apparently could dash off in a week, he said, it takes my mind from better things. He might have said he takes my readers' minds from better things, meaning his better things. Um, and yet, when Holmes tells Watson that he is descended from the sister of the French artist Vernet, Holmes being fictitious is descended from nobody. But Doyle was descended from the sister of the French artist Vernet. Uh -huh. So already they're sort of cousins. Next, we learn that they bank at the same bank. Next, we learn that they're both offered knighthoods in the same year. Now, Doyle wanted to turn his knighthood down. He felt it would make him an establishment spokesman or patsy. And his mother, under whose thumb he largely lived, she was known as the ma'am, said he must accept the knighthood for fear of offending the king or whatever it was. Holmes turns down his knighthood without batting an eyelash and we don't hear fuck all about his mother. And now I'm beginning to understand what, what Holmes does. For Doyle, he is a sort of an avatar. I don't know if you read Philip Roth, but if you do, you must have somewhere come across Nathan Zuckerman as Roth's avatar. Mm. I think Holmes was Doyle's avatar as he has now curiously become mine. <laughs> I speak through Sherlock. By the way, this just occurred to me about a month ago. So I'm clearly not the sharpest knife in the drawer. This is a new thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's always, you know, an, an author is usually almost too close to his material to see some things that are kind of obvious to uh, uh, readers or to other people yeah. around him. Um, but that's an excellent uh, uh, point, um, which brings me to my question about the two characters in the 7% solution, um, Holmes and Freud, because in your memoir, you um, relate the story of your dad, uh, the psychiatrist who um, talked to you about Freud and you saw the resemblance to Sherlock Holmes. So he sort of represents your uh, kind of both, both characters. So um, yeah. I was wondering about that personal level of whether that's a way to sort of address um, like I was, I was joking, I was talking to a friend, I was joking that, um, you know, when your father is a psychiatrist and tells you about Freud, and then you write a novel where Freud is a main character, it's almost like you're talking to your dad through this novel, in a sense. Yeah, I think probably there is a certain amount of truth in that. Um, it's not the only truth, but it's certainly, you know, pertinent, valid, real. And I think my father, by the way, who was nothing if not a subtle character, he got the bouquet. Um, he went through, you know, he, he was very proud. When he got over his shock that I had actually accomplished something, 
um, he was very pleased and and sort of thrilled by the book and particularly its success. I think just was like it was as bewildering to him as it was to me. <laughs> Would you say that the Freud character of the Seven Percent Solution is based on your father? He's based on a lot of things. He's the idea that ran through my head at the time, and again, this is to the best of my recollections, and recollections are not perfect, is that this book came about over the long haul when I was in high school and people said, oh, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? I don't know if you read this story anywhere already. So you, you know, so I was asking my, my dad and my dad was describing his methodology and I thought, gee, that, that sounds like Sherlock. And then I wondered how much Doyle knew about Freud, you know, and then I learned that Freud liked to read Sherlock Holmes stories for recreation mm -hmm. um, and that he compared himself to Sherlock Holmes, at least at one point in writing. Um, so. I think that I, you know, I, I, I noticed the resemblance between Holmes and Freud and the conceit of the book, I think, is that Holmes goes to be cured of his cocaine addiction from Freud, who is himself a recovering uh, cocaine addict. Um, And then when they join forces to solve the mystery, there is an exchange of gifts in a way. Um, Freud in this novel has not yet developed psychoanalysis, but thanks to his exposure to the methods of Holmes, observation, inference, deduction, clues, etc., he refines his own technique. Whereas Holmes says, you've taken my methods and applied them to the inside of a subject's head. And Freud's gift in turn is to get Holmes off Coke. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the, the idea behind the, the book in terms of plot, in terms of theme even. How did you go about researching um, the period and Freud's life and Freud's work up to that point? Because, I, I mean, when you look at Freud's biography, it feels very accurate um, to place it there. Um, so well, I eliminated, I eliminated some children. There were too many kids to keep track of. Um, but I, I read biographies of Freud. I know I read the Peter Gay biography i've now read like four freud biographies i'm not sure that the peter gay which is which is a good biography i'm not sure it's the best it's very worshipful um but i read frederick morton mm -hmm. uh a nervous splendor which i thought was fantastic um i remember that in have you been to los angeles yeah okay so in west in, in Westwood, which is the town where UCLA is located, back in the 70s, there were lots of bookstores because there were lots of books. And there was a bookstore 
they didn't know me from Adam, but they would let me sit in the back with a notebook and all these uh, books about, you know, Viennese cooking, Viennese cookbooks and, and other things that I just was like copying stuff out. And I made up, you know, things higgledy-piggledy. I don't know if you can jump off a bridge into the Argarten Canal or not. I just, but I saw it was on a map, so I thought, oh, it's okay. Somebody says, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of the, a lot of the details are, are uh, right. I mean, the places that you name, the Café Greensteidel, for example, also during the train ride when they go to Salzburg and it's close to the border and um, all this, um, you know, so it, yeah, it feels accurate and I... Um, What's interesting to me is that, in, and you can see behind me, I don't know how, how visible it is behind me. You see all these huge reference books. I mean, this, mm -hmm. like my, your, your place and mine, are, these are crammed with books, many of them reference books. Now, when I write Sherlock Holmes, I don't reach for one of them. Mm -hmm. I just go online and I find instantly whatever I'm looking for about anything. Um, I still like the books. I, I, I think books are the sort of the emotional insulation of a home mm -hmm. for me. I don't like to give them up. And somebody says, well, why do you keep your, all your CDs and your DVDs in this vast collection of stuff? And I go, I just want it. I don't want to be told by someone's algorithm, oh, we're no longer streaming this movie because it, I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear this some book I want to look up online is not available. I just want the fucking book mm. um, where I can see it, touch it. Mm. Um, but back then, yeah, it was, uh, I sat in the, all these bookstores and pulling down things. Is it okay if I copy this? Thank you. You know, and like <laughs> bring them donuts or something. <laughs> Now let's talk for a moment about the movie version um, of the book. Um, in your, you, you were the screenwriter on the film, even though you didn't direct it. And in your memoir, you mentioned that um, adapting this, the, the story into a screenplay gave you the chance to correct some of the, some of what you perceived as faults of the novel. Um, yeah, well, there were two reasons. There were two reasons why I changed things. One is, I, I was never very happy, rightly or wrongly, and, and who's to say what's right or wrong, but I was never very happy with the mystery that they mm -hmm. collaborated on. I'm, I'm not sure that making up mystery stories is my strong suit. <laughs> I'm still looking for what my strong suit is. I think I found some, but... <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not sure that, you know, mystery writing, I've, I've gotten better at it, I might add. But I viewed writing the screenplay as a chance to improve the mystery. But there was also a second reason. And that is that when you've read the mystery story in the book, and then you go to see the movie, you already know the mystery, you know the ending. And I noticed this particularly when I looked at the movie of uh, Presumed Innocent, mm -hmm. uh, which was a famous book and I read the book. So I know who did it. 
Then I went and looked at the movie and I still knew who did it. And that to me sort of robbed some of the pleasures of what mystery stories I think are supposed to do. So I thought, okay, once you put Freud and Holmes together, why don't you throw a curveball and make everybody wake up who thinks they know what's going to happen? So that was another reason for uh, doing what I did and changing the mystery. Mm. And I, I, th I think I probably improved it, but I, I don't know, maybe I did. And I think that you said at one point that um, you were actually fighting with uh, Herbert Ross, the director, um, about how faithful the film should be um, to the book. And the interesting thing is that you wanted it to be much more different um, than Herbert Ross wanted to be more faithful. And usually it's the other way around. <laughs> usually it's the writer who says, well, but this is in the book. <laughs> First of all, fighting is a strong word. Herb, I loved Herb. Mm -hmm. What I owe Herb, I could probably never actually ever repay. His great kindness of letting me be on the set and watch, which I wanted because I wanted to direct a movie of my own one day. Um, and his deference to me as the writer, as the, the book, you know, um, it was extraordinary. I guess it's important to be ruthless. The book is not a movie. They, they have their different imperatives. A book can be 200 pages, it can be 2000 pages. It can be written in the first person, it can be written in the third person, it can even be written in the second person, but it, it, it doesn't have to obey a dramatic form. But a drama and a, and a movie even a miniseries, these are, you have to figure out what makes something dramatic and how it works. And, you know, as an example, uh, and I obviously this is one where Herb won and he was, turns out to have been right. Once my novel was finished, I had a dream that two people in my novel were playing tennis. And I woke up and I just couldn't figure out which two people were playing tennis and why they were playing tennis. But it was very, and I was lying in bed and was it Holmes and Freud or was it Watson and I, And I came up with this thing and I called my editor in New York. I said, don't go any further. Let me just, you know, so I sent him three more pages or four pages, whatever it was, this tennis match. It just came out of this dream. And then it paid off, you know, no backhand, no backhand. Um, and I, I said, when we made the movie, I said, well, we don't want the tennis match. And we don't want the whole story to stop while these two guys are playing tennis. This isn't strangers on a train. Um, and Herb said, no, no, everybody loves the tennis match. So guess what? The tennis match is in and he made it work. It's, it's such a delightful, crazy thing that he made it work. He was right and I was wrong. But mainly I was right and 
he was wrong. And he, Herb had a passion for, he would call it clarity. And I would term it, you know, hitting every nail on the head, crossing every T, dotting every I. And it sometimes led him to things that from my standpoint were sort of appalling. And I'll give you one example. When Holmes finally comes out of his hallucinations and his withdrawal, Freud looks down and says, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And Holmes says, not well. And in my script, the next line was, do you remember Professor Moriarty? And Holmes says, yeah, I know what you want me to say. And the scene goes on. But in the movie, <laughs> Freud says, how do you feel? And he, Holmes goes, not, not well. And Freud says, yes, you do. You are much better. And in fact, today we are going to force some food into you. And I think there's no way on earth that anybody, Sigmund Freud, would ever talk like this. But Herb was trying to move along the plot, you know, in some way. And he put this line, I was just, I, you know, I still wince every time. Give you another example. At the very end of the movie, Freud hypnotizes Holmes for the last time. There is another portion of your mind to which I would also like to say farewell. And we finally, as Watson is sitting there just stunned, learn what's at the top of that staircase. And Freud says, it becomes clear. Now we understand his distrust of women, so well recorded by you, doctor, his choice of profession, punisher of, you know, he gives his laundry list. Mm -hmm. And after this whole thing, Watson says, you're the greatest detective of them all. And Freud, you know, sort of demurred. But, and I said, cut the speech. Mm -hmm. Herb says, what? <laughs> and I said, it's a laundry list of everything we already know. We just saw it. And besides, look what Alan Arkin does with his hands. He goes, it becomes clear. Mm. Cut. You're the greatest detective of the... He would not cut that fucking speech. That laundry <laughs> list. Mm. You know, and I'm thinking, no, no, no. What I discovered... You know, learning how to, I, I come from a place of words, mm -hmm. not a place of pictures. I was a theater director. I tried being an actor. I directed a play on the radio. That's all words. Directed a play a week. So I knew about all that. What I didn't know about was screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that it was a hard it was hard to learn how to write without words at the midnight sun film festival the week ago they showed buster keaton steamboat bill mm -hmm. the live orchestra i have seen the abel gans napoleon with the live or i've seen it about four times i have seen charlie chaplin i see it's different Mm -hmm. It's 
And you have to learn to think in terms of pictures. It becomes clear. And Herb, who directed a lot of plays by Neil Simon made into movies, mm -hmm. talk, 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 as opposed to what is visually mm -hmm. sufficient or compelling, that's different. And so uh, the attrition rate for dialogue in a screenplay of mine, certainly all those years ago, was 50%. Mm -hmm. Between the first draft and the finished movie, 50% of those words are going to go. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten better and better at, at eliminating them, you know, after doing this for 40 some odd years. You, you start to get the hang of it. At least you hope, you hope you're starting to get the hang of it. Um, so yeah, I wanted more stuff out. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I was learning how to write screenplays mm -hmm. and there's still words in it. And I had a, for years afterwards, uh, the movie left a kind of funny taste in my mouth because I thought, wow, the acting is terrific, the cinematography, the beauty, the mise-en-scene, it's all great, except the script, which is <laughs> yak, yak. But I've since revised my opinion. I've decided it's a great movie because I saw it, you know, after 20 years and I thought, okay, they talk a lot. They talk too much, but it's really good talk. It's mm. smart. Uh, and it makes you feel smart while you're watching it. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I sort of forgive myself a little. Yeah. I think it's also part of the attraction that you have these great minds on screen. Um, and, and, and I mean, a Sherlock Holmes story is always something which... I mean, it depends on the interpretation, of course. Um, there's the Guy Ritchie version, of, which has more action than other versions. Um, but I mean, it's it's still a story that is conveyed a lot with talk. You have Sherlock Holmes figuring out stuff and explaining it, yeah. um, or he's way ahead of everybody else, and they're trying to figure out what he already knows. And then you have Sigmund Freud, who is always also a great talker and. Um, I think that's why it works. You have the, the meeting of two great minds who um, you kind of expect to talk. Um, you kind of expect to um, discuss their ideas and their approaches. And yeah, you don't Freud... expect to see Freud shoveling coal into a locomotive. <laughs> 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 and I think that's also why the, the tennis scene is so charming because um, nobody can imagine Sigmund Freud playing tennis. It, every single... Picture well, you have of Sigmund Freud is that, that Anna Freud, you know, was alive when the book came out. And her comment was, But my father never played tennis. <laughs> that was her takeaway. <laughs> see? Yeah, I mean, we always see wow. him as the guy who's sitting um, and he's talking and he's doing analysis. And I mean, every portrait, every. And, and the way he talked, I mean, you can just not see him doing something physical. So I think that's well, why in, in, in fact, great. Um, when you learn about Freud, and also, as I did finally, become psychoanalyzed yourself, which is a long, mm. expensive, sometimes boring, but 
ultimately, in my case, exceptionally rewarding experience, you learn that the function of the analyst is not to talk, it's to listen. Mm -hmm. Give you an example. If I'm directing a scene in a movie, let's assume for the sake of argument that we're in the same room and we're playing this interview scene. I'm doing close-ups of you, I'm doing close-ups of me, I'm doing maybe over the shoulder, maybe I'm watching what your hands are doing. The floor is covered with wire, outside the frame is lights, there's a crew of 100 people standing around, there's producers looking at their watch, staring at the window, worrying about the rain, why the star won't come out of the trailer, and I'm trying to just sort of bulldoze through and, and get the shots. I'm not even thinking anymore what the scene is about. I'm just thinking, do you have the close-up? Then you turn all this material that you've shot over to an editor. And if he's a, if he's a good editor, or if he's the right editor for this project, he will play back your scene. He will take all these bits and pieces. He doesn't see the wiring. He doesn't see the guys looking at their watch. He just sees this material. He goes, bop, 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 bop and he plays it back for you. And if he's good, and if he's right for this movie, and if he gets what you're trying to do, you look at it and you recognize it. You go, yes, this is correct. Maybe I would add another beat to him uh, putting the poison in the cup, but whatever. But that flicker, you know, but if he's a great editor, he's found stuff in your footage you didn't even know was there. You know, just tiny little things that are going on that he had the leisure to sort of pay attention to. That's what the analyst is. The analyst is a is an editor. I'm lying on that couch. I'm giving him the dailies from my head, the flashbacks, the close-ups, the wide angles, the I don't know what, the music. He don't talk. But at the end of the hour, he say, "Well, today." You seem to be saying, <laughs> and he plays it back for you. Mm -hmm. And if he's the right analyst or if he's right for you, you recognize what you're hearing, what he's, what he's showing you. If he's the wrong analyst or whatever, maybe you go, no, no, it doesn't ring a bell. You have to be careful of that one because maybe he, is on to something and you're just mm. not ready to you're, you're blocking it yeah there's that possibility but i think it's not a bad analogy the analyst is a listener mm -hmm. Freud, he's a very good writer he's he writes very he writes like like uh, doyle mm -hmm. there's a real strong resemblance in the way they write but the strength of freud and it's not about any of his theories. Let's put that one away. His theories could all be wrong. He's still a genius. Mm. And, and how is he a genius if his theories are wrong? This is because the real comparison is with Columbus. Like Columbus, Freud is the first person who's not an artist to set foot on an undiscovered continent. Mm -hmm. land of the unconscious and if his maps of that land 
should subsequently be proved to be in error. Does anybody remember or care that Columbus thought he was in India? Mm. He's still a genius. But Freud is about listening and hearing what people say and how they say it and what they don't say. Mm -hmm. And looking for clues from the patient as to what is going on. And then he can almost sort of Socratic-like saying, would it be fair to say that today you're talking about X, Y, and Z? And Freud, you know, he kept dreaming up theories and tossing them out. And, you know, one one day it was infantile sexuality and the next thing it was the death wish. And who the hell knows? He He was just fumfering around trying to map this unknown continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think those scenes are really the heart of the story of the 7% solution. Um, it's the, 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 the therapy between uh, Holmes and Freud. I think that's the, um, the, where all the attention goes to. I mean, it's, um, I think that's why the case is maybe, um, you were maybe unhappy with the case in the first version or, uh, because the case is sort of a, like something that is added to um, what the central piece of the the characters uh, or, or what or what the story is? Very possibly, as I say, I, I I think the idea of putting them together and why they're together, which that wasn't my idea either, because I don't get ideas; I just find them. <laughs> um, I think that. Uh, that was so good and i think i was very happy with the execution of that and i knew what had to happen next i knew they had to combine forces mm-hmm. on a case it was just like okay I'm, you know am I, am I as good at this as you know raymond chandler or ross mcdonald and the answer is yeah, maybe not so much <laughs> yeah maybe it's because such an unusual construction because the case doesn't figure um, until the second half of the book. The story, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the next novel, The West End Horror, is much more of a classical detective mystery type it's of story. Absolutely my best imitation, mm-hmm. unadorned. In that sense, and again, this is my opinion, and, and you know, it's just one person's opinion because artists lose all proprietary authority over their creations mm-hmm. when they're finished. When, but I, and there may be other books that I like as much or better, but for as a pure Conan Doyle mm-hmm. adventure, I think the West End horror fills that bill the most completely. Just my opinion. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's like I said, the most classical um, of your home stories, because I mean, yes, just the way London the case the is yeah, and they have like something is has happened that there's a murder, and they start to investigate, and you have different uh, um, people who are um, suspects, suspects, <laughs> so um, who are suspects, and you have all sorts of strange coincidences and, and questions, and then at the end there's the solution, which is sort of a very surprising solution and very timely um i might add um i was i was reading this during the pandemic um during the first year of the pandemic um and wow i thought okay this is this feels more strange i think than uh back in 1976 when i'm sure that's true i'm sure that's true 
Now, the brilliant part about the West End horror is I think the like the all-star cast of uh, real life figures um, that you have, George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde and Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, basically everybody who was anybody <laughs> during those days. No, I was just wondering how you go about um, creating them as characters and letting them interact with Holmes. It's almost as if you're having a conversation with those characters yourself. The thing I was really proud of in the West End horror is that all those people in the novel are doing what they were really doing in the first week of March, 1895 or whatever it was. I think I, I may have moved one event by a year, but otherwise I think they were all doing what they were doing in the first week of March, 1895 and how I managed to you know, intertwine all that stuff. Well, as you probably, you know, infer, I've done a lot of Victorian reading, mm -hmm. partially out of a love for English prose at that time, whether we're talking about Doyle or George Eliot or Charles Dickens or H. Ryder Haggard or Anthony Hope. Remember in the 7% Solution, they meet Rudolf Rassendel coming back from Ruritania. <laughs> the prisoner of Zenda, yeah. Prisoner of Zenda, yeah. Um, and I, I've read several biographies of Oscar Wilde, of which the, the, the best, I think, without question, is the Richard Elman uh, life. I'm not sure I'd read that when I wrote this. I, maybe it wasn't even published when I wrote it. Um, but I read the, the Michael Holroyd and the um, uh, Hesketh Pearson and, and, and also his Gilbert and Sullivan stuff. And, and I, I learned a little bit about Bram Stoker because my dad uh, reviewed a, a paper about Bram Stoker. And I learned, you know, that his real name was Abraham and that he had this mysterious disease and, and so forth. Um, so I, I sort of collect all this miscellaneous stuff. And then I, it's like fiddling with a Rubik's cube, I think sometimes writing a, a mystery or a screenplay or something, you just start saying, well, if he goes there, what would happen then? And you, I can't really explain it because, uh, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, but when you're writing, or for all I know, painting, uh, you, you go into a state of flow. Mm -hmm. Time passes, you look up, it's hours later. Where have you been? Who, who knows? Um, I was always fascinated. And <clears throat> somebody quoted this thing in Plato where Socrates is told by the oracle at Delphi that he's the wisest man in Greece. <laughs> he thinks oh, that can't be right. And all I have to do is find someone wiser than me. Mm -hmm. So he goes to, to all segments of Greek society, talking to people, and he finally gets around to the poets. And I think he means artists in general. Surely these men, I guess it was men, who uh, write and sculpt and paint so insightfully about the human condition 
will prove to be wiser than me. And he says, imagine my surprise when I found out that the poets were the stupidest people I spoke to. They were like children. It was like children. They were just childish. There was except when they did their art. Mm -hmm. And then they go into a kind of trance during which they take dictation from God. And this they call inspiration. Mm -hmm. Then when it's over, they come out and they're idiots again. They're just, you know, and, and I think when people ask me or when you ask artists, you know, how do you create? What's going on? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we make up answers because writers are liars. That's why Plato didn't want us in the Republic because we lie. When you say, how did we do this? Why did you choose that? And you go, well, it was raining that day. You know, Gilbert <laughs> says he got the idea to write the Mikado because there was a samurai sword hanging over his desk and it fell off its string and it almost decapitated. It was a very good story. Maybe it's even true. It just doesn't explain how he wrote the Mikado. Mm. So, you know, when you say to me the West End Horror and, and, and how intricately all these pieces fit together, and I remember being proud of the fact that they were all doing more or less what they were doing. And I worked in the, the story of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle exonerating uh, this Indian mm -hmm. man because that's based on a real thing that he was involved in. There's a whole lot of literature, movies about it. Um, Adalji, George Adalji was his name, or Edelji, however he says it. Um, but I don't remember how I did the book. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, it's a very <laughs> long-winded, unsatisfactory answer. <laughs> no, I can completely understand. I mean, it's always a sort of a balance between process and and things that are i don't know what you call craftsmanship and there's like you say happy accident and happy uh, accident yeah that too um and that's why um artists often are very surprised that something is in their work uh, which they weren't even aware of when somebody points out that oh this is a great analogy of or um oh my god is that <laughs> that is so true i half the time i Sometimes I realize I didn't even understand my own plot. Um, <laughs> in, in, in Star Trek II, everybody loves the moment when Kirk, trapped on this planet, mm -hmm. yells out at the top of his lungs, Khan! <laughs> and somebody points out, you know, he is acting mm -hmm. because he knows he's going to be rescued. He's playing to Khan to try to, you know, throw him off his, his game. And I thought, oh yeah, that's right. That's what he, <laughs> I forgot that. Um, and somebody more recently said, you know, we all talk about how Spock sacrifices his life for the crew of the Enterprise. And they said, well, he does no such thing. We learn in the scene mm. that they're all going to die 
they're all going to die. You can't stop it. The Genesis thing is one of those. Um, so it's a question of whether they all die or whether it's possible if one person dies that the rest might mm -hmm. live. But Spock would die with them or without them, right? Because they were all going to die. This is called, by the way, lifeboat ethics. Mm -hmm. it's, it's taught in law school. It's based on a very famous case of a ship, I think it was called the William Brown mm -hmm. in about 1840, on the way to America with a cargo of immigrants, hit an iceberg more or less where the Titanic did 60, 70 years later. And the ships went down and there was one lifeboat that was so overloaded that it was only because it was a very calm sea that they were all afloat, but there was a storm coming. And it was a question where all would drown or some might be saved if others went into the water. Who should go? Who should choose? And so forth. And I mean, there's a whole movie about it in the 50s with Tyrone Power mm -hmm. called Abandoned. Who goes in? Who's lifeboat ethics? Mm -hmm. And Spock, Spock climbs into the water. Mm. Yeah, it's a logical decision, of course. But I guess it's a sacrifice because he chooses to do it. I mean, someone else might want to volunteer. So, um... But regardless of whether he does it or not, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make any difference to his fate. Mm. He's going to die no matter what. Mm. The only question is whether the rest of them are going to die. Mm. Well, I mean, if Kirk was the one to say, well, I'm going to go in and fix this thing so that everyone else might live, um, then that would be a different fate for Spock. So I guess that's why it's a second. Oh, right. I, I mean, they did that in the, um, the, 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 um, the new version in the reboot. Uh, they sort of flipped the scene um, on its head. Um, Don't talk to me about the reboot. <laughs> if we're going to be friends. <laughs> So you're not a friend of it either. <laughs> Listen, I love JJ. I've known him since he was a little kid. I used to read him bedtime stories. Really? So, oh yeah. So I've, I've, I, I know him and I love him. <laughs> Let's not talk about Into the Darkness. <laughs> yeah, let's let's skip that one. Let's talk about uh, the the Star Trek Holmes connection instead with Star Trek VI, um, where Spock is the descendant of Sherlock Holmes. Well, I never had any trouble writing Spock because I thought it was like <laughs> writing Holmes. And then I thought, yeah, why not? It just was like a what they call an Easter egg, I suppose. But you know, every time I see the movie with an audience, they all go nuts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was an ancestor of mine. And that part of the film is actually a little bit of a detective plot where they have a oh, traitor yeah, and they're trying to figure out who it is. And um have that kind of uh, a trick that they play to um, lure him or her um, out of the shadows. So um, I thought it was very much a Holmesian influence, I think, on, on that part of the story. I'm sure that's true. Um, as I say, I don't, I don't really get ideas. And when they wanted another Star Trek movie, I, I didn't have anything. And then Leonard uh, came to visit me and we went for a walk. And he said, you know, the, this was like right after the 
Berlin Wall came down. And he said, you know, the Klingons have always been our stand-ins for the Russians. And I was like, they really? I didn't even um, he, he said, well, what if the wall comes down in outer space? Who am I if I have no enemy to define me? And that was all I needed. That was all I needed. I said, great. We start with an intergalactic Chernobyl. The Klingon Empire is going to be these illegal aliens going all over the galaxy. You should pardon the expression. And blah, blah, blah. Kirk assigned to do the thing. And he screws it up because he doesn't like Klingons. I spieled it all out. The, um, I don't, the, the gravity the murder itself I worked out later but at the time I said you know they're arrested there's a show trial they go to a prison planet there's so all these various tropes just lined up like dominoes um and then it was originally a sand planet um and some executive said I'm tired of sand so I said fine it's a snow planet. <laughs> um and it is kind of like that and uh, yeah, and, and, and just um, all those various things, the trial scene, the, the locked room murder, the, the escape, the POW escape movie, mm-hmm. you know, and the final battle and all that stuff. And it's just kind of laid out pretty, you know, and, and I wrote it with my friend who was my assistant uh, Denny Martin Flynn, mm-hmm. and he was he was a brilliant he was a brilliant guy. Um, very interesting. He he had been a Broadway dancer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but he was a very good very good writer. Mm-hmm. I think you worked with him on in several capacities. He was the choreographer, I think, on the Deceivers, um, yeah. and he yeah. did a radio play of um, the of the Seven Percent Solution, right? I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. Yeah. He was a, he was a lovely man. He died young. Mm. Yeah, it seems that it's a very great talent that you have to bring together various ideas of existing materials to create something new. I mean, just like you did with the Sherlock Holmes uh, stories, or in this case with Star Trek. Um, also, time after time, uh, for example, which another that's another process. idea that wasn't mine. I found that hard to believe when I when I read that line in your memoir um, that you didn't come up with because it's so in your ballpark. <laughs> Let me try to explain something. Um, and again, you know, you, you have to take everything I say with a ton of salt because, um, you know, I, don't, I may not mean to be a liar, but I'm, I have a fallible memory. I have a very good memory. I can yank in bits and pieces of different things and know how to put them together, but it isn't a perfect memory. I described in my memoir how I met, how I knew Carl Alexander mm-hmm. and how he gave me his 65 pages in this ingenious thing, which it occurred to me would make a terrific movie and I optioned it. But I'll give you an example of how I think of my self, which may 
or may not be meaningful to you when you hear it. Many, many, many years ago, more than I would like to acknowledge, <laughs> I was at a, at a party in New York City at a big apartment on Fifth Avenue, and it was all French film people. Why I was at this party, I have no recollection. <laughs> and I, I just was there. And these were all people that I, actors and directors whom I so admired. And I was just so thrilled to be near them. And there was one guy who was sort of my favorite French director. And we'll get to who he was later. But there was a foyer and there were a lot of dessert cakes. So the hostess kind of floats through the foyer, which is empty except for me and this director who have not been introduced. But I'm watching him like a hawk because he's my idol. And the hostess says, oh, X darling, would you cut the dessert cakes? And he goes, sure, and she leaves. And it's just the two of us. And he's starting to cut the cake. And I am standing there amazed. Why? Because I don't know about you, but when I cut a cake, when anybody cuts a cake for the last 10,000 years, they start in the middle and they go in pie slices, triangle wedges, all the way around. Not this guy. This guy was cutting circles and parallelograms and squares, and I don't know what he was doing. And again, I've not been introduced, and I sidle up to him and I say, why, why are you cutting the cake like that? And he doesn't look up, and still haven't been introduced. He goes, oh, this way everybody can have the size and the shape that they want. And I withdraw in confusion. I start walking up Fifth Avenue, not on the pavement, in the middle of the street. It's 12 midnight or something. And I don't care if I'm hit by a car. I just realize that I have witnessed a profoundly original act. Mm -hmm. My first thought, and this shows you how stupid I am, was <laughs> I can't wait to cut the cake like that. <laughs> and I think you really are an idiot. If you live to be a thousand, you will never cut the cake like that. It will never occur to you to mm. cut the cake. That's an original guy. You are not an original guy. And then I decided not to kill myself when I realized that it, if I was incapable of such an action, at least I understood it when I saw it. Mm -hmm. I preserve it in my memory and I am recounting it to you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, that's the kind of artist you are. You will take somebody's idea. You will recognize its value, even if they don't. And you'll run with it. And certainly time after time is, a, is another example of something. I, I don't know if the author of that uh, story 
is as profoundly original as Louis Mal, mm-hmm. director. Who else would make a comedy about incest? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and a good one. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's I, I, time after time is not my idea. Freud Meet Holmes is not my idea. Um, Star Trek II is cobbled together from five unrelated scripts. All the dialogue, virtually, all the dialogue was mine, but otherwise, no. Hmm. Maybe when I was listening to the story, I was thinking of what we were talking about earlier, um, the way you see Watson in um, relation to Sherlock Holmes. Um, I mean, Watson is the one who recognizes uh, what Sherlock Holmes does. Watson understands what Sherlock Holmes does. He's not an idiot and he doesn't, um, you know, he's not so oblivious to the fact that um, he's in the presence of genius, so to speak. Um, so maybe there's an analogy there that hasn't quite formed in my head yet, but um, it's just. Call me back. <laughs> <laughs> it's formed. <laughs> So the third uh, Holmes novel that you did, um, that came a couple years, um, well, the, the, oh, way I later, think, um, maybe 15 years later, no, even later, 17 years, I think, um, after the second one. Um, so you did a lot the of movies. The second one was something like 76 and, 76 and, and, and the other one was 93. 93. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's, so that's 17 years um, in between. So um uh, how did you uh, how did that happen that you went back to the world of homes um i had been supposed to write or direct i can't remember a movie and the movie fell apart and i needed to make some money um you know dr johnson said a man who writes for any reason besides money is a blockhead um <laughs> so I, I was really at my wits end because I had been counting on this paycheck and this job. Mm-hmm. I was living in London at the time and I didn't know what to do. And I, I'm a sucker for bookstores. It's like letting a heroin addict loose in a pharmacy. <laughs> and I was in a bookstore on Marlebone Road, a famous bookstore called Daunt's Bookstore. And I was just looking at books and I saw this novel, The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston LaRue. Mm-hmm. And I realized I, I had never read this book. Maybe I didn't even know there was a book. Just all these different movies. Mm-hmm. So I pull the book down, I start reading and I'm reading the introduction. And the guy who wrote the introduction said, Gee, it's kind of amazing that Sherlock Holmes never crossed paths with the Phantom because the dates were there. Back. <laughs> and I was like looking around, is anybody seeing me? Look at this. And I like buy the book, take it home, read it, and and then sort of write my version of the Phantom of the Opera, inserting Sherlock Holmes versus the Phantom. Mm-hmm. And that's how it happened. I think that 
there's many things about the book that I quite like. I think ultimately what I learned from it is it's very hard to write Holmes without Watson. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only person who's done it. Even Holmes writes a story in which Watson is not mm-hmm. present. The lion's mane, right? Yeah, what a piece of crap. It's a terrible story. <laughs> and maybe it's, maybe it's, that's why people say, well, maybe it's fake. It's not a real mm-hmm. home story. Um, so yeah, that's how that came about. Mm-hmm. And I, I only write these home stories when I stumble across an idea that's so exciting that it simply won't let go. And I, it won't let go. I have to have to do it. And the, the uh, adventure of the peculiar protocols to jump ahead 23 years or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought of, I was thinking about that for 10 years before I wrote it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out a way to have Holmes interact with the protocols of the elders of Zion. Um, and I finally read a, a book about the protocols that sort of um, put me in touch. So, the, so you know, then I wrote the protocols thing. And then my, my agent and friend said, what about homes in Egypt? Mm-hmm. And that lit up fire and that was an easy one. And I haven't, and then much to my surprise, I, I found I have an, an idea for another one. And this was like my idea. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to see if my publisher is interested in another one or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly hope so. And I'm sure he is. Now, the interesting thing, I, I, I think, is that all of these novels always have, um, they're almost a different genre every time. The Phantom of the Opera is, is very much a gothic horror story. Um, I mean, they're digging up graves um, it, it during, <laughs> and, and it's a ghost story in a sense, uh, obviously, because of the, uh, the, the source material. And then the Peculiar Protocols is almost like a spy thriller. It's political intrigue and a conspiracy. Um, and the, um, the Return of the Pharaoh then is an adventure type story. Um, so um, is that something where you sort of the, the, the material that you want to work with sort of dictates what kind of genre it's going to be in or? I think it must be, it, 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 it must be. Um, again, I wanted to play, I always want to play the chronological game. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want it to be in spaces where it could fit. Once you have that, what's known in the Holmes chronology as the great hiatus, when all the world thinks he's dead and he comes back and he says, I was in Tibet, I was here and there. That's a little gap mm-hmm. you can put something in. And I think that's where I put the Phantom of the Opera and, uh, and where I put the 7% solution, I think is somewhere in that, in that slot. Cause it's a couple of years that he's, that he's out of touch. And then the, the protocols and the Pharaoh are almost, there's a slight gap, but they're basically Edwardian mm-hmm. stories. Um, and the next one, if it 
if I have 17,000 words, I, I don't know if I'm going to keep writing it or not. I'm waiting to hear. Would be 1912, 1913 mm -hmm. in there. So he's 66 years old. Mm -hmm. He's an older, you know, man. Mm -hmm. I guess if I write it, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably going to be the last one, but I don't know. Well, I hope not. I mean, I'm, um, I can sort of understand reading your books, um, how an audience is, can be greedy, you know, because I already have five of your books um, of the home stories and you always say, okay, well, I'd like another one. I'd like to have another one. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are so many homes imitations now. Uh, when I wrote the 7% solution, I, it, it was certainly true that there had been other homes, they call them pastiches, which is not a word I'm crazy about, but mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's become pejorative. It wasn't originally supposed to be. But there, if I spent all my time doing nothing but reading other people's home stories, <laughs> I would... I would never read another book and I'd die before I finished it. It's mm -hmm. such a glut on the market now mm -hmm. where, where the 7% sort of stood out with a clear field. No one had done anything like this. Now, man, oh man, the mm -hmm. shelves are sagging with them. Most of them are probably pretty indifferent. Some of them, and I haven't, I, I don't read them pretty much, uh, not because I turn up my nose at them, but because I fear they might be better, uh, mm. as some of them <laughs> probably are. And then I'm very insecure. And I think, ah, or or the worst thing is that I'll start to imitate them imitating Doyle mm -hmm. and it becomes a whole of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's best to stay away then, I guess. I also think that some of the more what I'll call slavish imitations and authors of these books who boast, for example, that they don't use a word in their texts that Doyle hadn't used. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it sounds like taxidermy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it, it sounds like, I don't know, stuffed animal heads or something. If, unless you are capable of inserting something that's a little bit different or original. And I think one of the reasons why I like getting homes out of London and putting them in France and mm -hmm. Russia and Egypt is a, a chance to make him a fish out of water and having to sort of raise mm -hmm. his game a little differently and, and write him a little differently. And at some point, you know, in the adventure of the protocols, he appears to have a, a kind of a romance. Mm. In the missing pages, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'm, whoa, do you really want to do this? And I go, I'm in my 70s. What are they going to do to me? <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm doing it, whatever. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, uh, originally when the 7% solution came out, there's a lot of people who were very angry that I had made their hero into a drug addict. And I said, in the first place, I didn't make him into a drug addict. Doyle makes him into a drug addict. And in the second place, I think you confuse heroes with gods. Mm -hmm. 
you, you want somebody to be perfect. But even Doyle has homes have failures. You read the yellow face, it's a failure. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's a fatal failure. People get killed and he failed to present, prevent it. Makes him human, makes him three-dimensional. Mm. You know, and I you probably read this in, in my memoir, so forgive me for uh, quoting myself, but if a man jumps into a raging river to save a drowning child, I think we agree he performs a heroic act. But if the same guy jumps into the same river to save the same kid and does it with a ball and chain attached to his leg, do we count him more or less heroic? I think the cocaine is Holmes's his and chain. The fact that he functions despite it makes him more remarkable, not, mm. you know, eventually I think people sort of came around to this and then I got finally got invited to join the Baker Street Irregulars. Mm, okay. Which I was not, you know, they were so busy being angry um, <laughs> that he was shooting up. I think it's always important to have a hero um, who's vulnerable um, because I mean, who can relate to a perfect human being? I can't. Um, I think it's the, the human frailties that, um, that we can identify with. Um, and I mean, Sherlock Holmes is not a perfect character. I mean, he is aloof. He is, um, in a sense, he is somewhat square. I mean, he has this, this life of an almost recluse. I mean, he has exactly one friend um, and a housekeeper. Um, so it's not exactly the kind of life that you would want to live, right? And he's politically very naive. You know, mm -hmm. Watson says knowledge of politics feeble. He's very much an establishment kind of person. Mm -hmm. he, he accepts Victorian white values pretty much. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, in the West End horror, he champions the Indian man. But it, He's a little bit square, to use your word. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of political ideas, I think the, the peculiar protocols are particularly interesting in that regard, because it, it feels very much, um, much more outspoken in a sense, or much more connected to the time that it was um, published in. I mean, there, there are certain ideas, of course, in, in other novels. You have this aside in the Canary Trainer in the introduction where you talk about the Bush and Reagan's administration stance on education. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the peculiar protocols, that's very much a political story. Um, so was that prompted by, um, you know, what everything that's go been going on for the past, I don't know, five or 10 I, years, I guess. Again, this is a, you know, this is the writer talking. My, when I realized that I was a forger, which was many years ago, <laughs> a reporter said to me, how does it feel to be a successful forger? <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, you're a, forger. Then I got interested in the subject of forgery. Mm -hmm. I have a whole library out of sight here that is nothing but books about forgery, about Van Meegren, about 
um, what's his name, um, the Hungarian uh, uh, guy that's in F for Fake. Um, I'm, I'm blank. Clifford Irving and what was his name? Anyway, I got interested in forgery. When you start getting interested in forgery, it is only a matter of time before you you get to the protocols, mm -hmm. which is the biggest, baddest, most enduring forgery of all time. So then, because a lot of people have never heard of them. The, the, the late um, head of the Sherlock Holmes Society, a lovely, lovely man, the, the Baker Street Irregulars in New York, uh, was a, a lovely guy from Indiana who said to me, you know, I was halfway through your novel before I realized that you weren't making this thing up about the protocols. So a lot of people don't know. I sure didn't know. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm reading these the books about this thing and I'm saying, how is it possible that no matter how many times this thing is exposed, no matter how many times I explain to people that yes, it really is Ricardo Montalban's chest. <laughs> Not a fake chest, it was a chest. Nobody, you know, it's, it's like the, this persistent myth or belief, no matter, you know, and in, in America right now, this, our country is falling apart. You probably understand this between people who, among other things, believe that the election was stolen, you know, by Joe, Joe Biden. It's absolutely preposterous. And yet. It's an idea that's certainly taken hold and that's being propagated across the, across the months. Yeah, just silly. But, you know, as Mark Twain said, it would be hilarious if it weren't mortal. Mm. Yeah, I know a similar kind of expression that goes, it would be funny if it wasn't sad. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's what I was thinking about uh, when I read the protocols, um, just the whole, the idea of fake news and the whole, the, the, you know, the move towards the rights, the whole, the whole, you know, more and more hate that comes out of all corners and, that somehow seems to take hold, and um, and of course there's a very downbeat ending in the novel, in that they, they they sort of know what it's about, and they know the history of it, and they say, well, it won't make a difference. Um, I mean, that's a um, it's a failure. Yeah, it's a failure. So, is the next um, novel that you have, that you're working on is that going to be a um, again, something that's more uh, more political or more timely, or is it something that's um, moving away from that? It is. I don't know if it's timely, but it it definitely it involves real events. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. It intertwines Holmes with real events, some of which uh, people know about, but I think. In many cases, people don't know. 
about what I'm proposing to have him mixed up with. Mm -hmm. they, they don't know about the thing, let alone that he could be part of it. I think when you, the, the highest compliment when you're reading the protocols is the one that Mike said to me, he says, he, he thought he was reading fiction. Mm. So he was halfway through. So if, 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 if they read like fiction, then maybe it works. I guess that's a kind of a side effect of the, the way that you play with real life events and real life figures and fiction. Of course, when I was reading West End Horror, I was thinking, oh, is there, was there a critic called Jonathan McCarthy? And I actually looked him up and okay, he's fiction apparently. Um, so <laughs> um, I think that kind of happens when you, when you play that game. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, so overall, um, what would you say, what is the, the, the importance or the influence of, of literature um, on your, um, on your job as a storyteller, on your job as a filmmaker? I'm not sure I understand your question. I've always loved stories since I was a little boy. And it, it never made any difference in a way what kind of story it was. It could be funny, it could be sad, it could be science fiction, it could be historical, it could be a movie, it could be a play, it could be a ballet, it could be an opera. Um, I'm just a sucker for narrative, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's very, if it, if it sort of begins with a once upon a time, I'm there. I cannot read a document that isn't a narrative. I cannot read legal documents. I cannot mm. understand, you know, I sort of can put together Ikea furniture, um, <laughs> but those are drawings, not words. I just, <laughs> but I don't think I make a distinction, which if I understood your question, which I probably didn't, between literature as a sort of separate category from other kinds of narrative mm -hmm. i just i've i've always liked words i i i love english as a language i love playing with words i love stringing them together i think i've lately recognized holmes as i say as my nathan zuckerman my avatar. When I was a kid, I would recite plots at the dinner table mm -hmm. and my family would, would have to shut me up. Three minutes, Nikki, no plots. <laughs> oh, plots. And I said, but wait, you, you have to hear what happens when they, when they come on board the submarine and there's no one there. And, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. I would rather watch an episode of the Lone Ranger on our little black and white TV than go ice skating with my dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, once I got ice skating, I was into it and I was having a fine time. But otherwise, it's like, how does it come out? I have the same problem listening to music on the radio. If I'm in the middle of a musical piece and I get to my driveway, I'm winding up sitting in the car, mm -hmm. waiting for a place in the music where I can interrupt it. And I can't just 
switch it off in mid-phrase. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if I know the piece. Oh, yes. You know. I, I know that feeling. <laughs> I, I know how it ends, you know, but but no. I, I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I know that feeling. Uh, I'm the same way with music. Um, I can see you have a big collection. Yeah, yeah. And when I put on a record, I actually, you know, I sort of... Uh, I make sure that I have the time to listen to the entire record so that I won't get interrupted and I won't have to, you know, stop it at some point where I don't want it to stop or so, yeah. <laughs> I also can't, this is, I don't know if it's the same thing, but I can't read while I'm listening to music. Mm -hmm. I can't write while I'm listening to music. If I'm listening to music, that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's just a story in itself, I guess. Um, I can I can write when uh, there's uh, instrumental music uh, playing in the background. So I've sometimes experimented with, you know, having soundtracks play um, in the background or ambient music or, you know, just light jazz or something without words, because as soon as there, there are words, I start listening to them and they sort of interfere. Uh, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes it, it puts me in the mood and sometimes it distracts I try. me. I have on occasion listen to uh, wordless music while writing, but I'm trying to write my, make my own music with mm -hmm. the, and I, I get confused a little bit.